It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today we're featuring a discussion with Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI. His conversation with NBC's Lester Holt was held Wednesday, June 18th at the Aspen Security Forum in Aspen, Colorado. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Here's the conversation between FBI Director Christopher Wray and NBC Nightly News anchor Lester Holt. Holt starts us off. Well, thank you everyone for being here and Director Wray, have a seat. And, uh, we got to spend a little time together uh, in preparation. I find Director to be a man of a lot of passion, very proud of, of the FBI, the people that work under him. And I want you to know how important that is to us because at the end of the day, we all depend on you, and we depend on the work of the, of the FBI. And I just want to thank you for your willingness to, to sit here. Thank you. And I just want to, want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, I promised that it wouldn't be any worse than a tooth extraction. So uh, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about. Um, we're going to go through some of the headlines that we're all following. I think you, you know what I'm referring to. And we're going to talk about some other things that the Bureau is doing that don't get quite the headlines, but are immensely important. So, um, and then at some point we'll take questions from the audience. But before we get to all that, just tell me a little bit why you wanted to come back into law enforcement. Well, you know, it's interesting. I wasn't looking to come back into law enforcement. I did love my time in law enforcement and national security before. Um, and I had a very comfortable life in the private sector. But uh, I always felt that there, you know, the mission kind of called me back. Uh, and then when I kind of got a call out of nowhere uh, about whether or not I'd be interested in coming back, and I started talking to a few close friends, many of them former agents that I'd worked with both in the field or at headquarters. Uh, and got, you know, got excited about the opportunity. Uh, and it's just an unbelievable group of people and an unbelievable mission. Uh, and even though I've just recently injured my calf, I like to say I've got an extra spring in my step. Uh, so there's, you know, there's never a day that I'm not being confronted with some extraordinary, extraordinary uh, example of courage, of selflessness, of patriotism, which is not a word I throw around lightly. Uh, so it's just a, it's a great organization with great people. You've been doing this uh, for a little less than a year. Who do you get advice from? Do you talk to your predecessors, Mr. Comey and Mr. Mueller? Uh, not so much. Uh, <laughs> not so much. Uh, although Judge Webster is here, and I'm very, very pleased to see him. All right, well, let's, let's talk about some of the things that I've been covering in the world is certainly watching very carefully right now. Uh, I wonder, did you watch and what your reaction was to Vladimir Putin's denials of Russian involvement in the 2016 U.S. election? Well, I, I didn't watch it live. I was in a meeting, actually, with uh, some of my foreign counterparts, um, some of our closest foreign partners in the intelligence community. Um, but I certainly saw it afterwards. Um, He's got his view. He's expressed his view. I can tell you what my view is. Uh, the intelligence community's assessment has not changed. My view has not changed, uh, which is that Russia attempted to interfere with the last election uh, and that it continues to engage in malign influence operations to this day. Aimed at our political system? Aimed at sowing discord and divisiveness in this country. We haven't yet seen an effort to target specific election infrastructure this time, uh, but certainly other efforts, what I would call malign influence operations, are, are very active, uh, and we could be just a, a moment away from it going to the next level. So to me, it's a threat that we need to take extremely seriously and respond to with uh, you know, fierce determination and, and focus. The suggestion has been uh, that it's Russia, but there may be others. Are there others? Well, there's certainly other countries that are designed to, you know, on a going forward basis, have their own ways of influencing our, uh, our public opinion, our politicians, our business community. Uh, but there's no question that Russia has been by far the most aggressive actor 
in the space that we're talking about right now. And, and, it, and you're seeing it in real time now that they continue? To, absolutely. There's uh, you know, efforts to what they do is they will identify a divisive issue and through a variety of means, some overt, some covert, some through fake news, some through propaganda, will essentially sow divisiveness, spin people up on both sides of the issue, um, and then kind of watch us go at each other. The set of indictments that were filed, I believe it was last Friday, the 12 Russian intelligence operators, it was very specific in, in the methods, also very specific, and you name names. Was that in many ways a shot across the bow that, that we not only know, we know a lot? Was there a warning embedded in there as well? Well, I don't, I don't want to comment on the special counsel's investigation. I'm going to let the indictment speak for itself. Uh, I will say that the FBI, not just in its work on that matter, but in lots of other matters, has gotten much, much more sophisticated, uh, much more tech-savvy, uh, much more able to partner with foreign governments and get access to information overseas. And so the same basic character that drives the FBI the diligence, the persistence, you know, the old saying, the FBI always gets its man, uh, applies in this space too. Um, and we have tried in a lot of settings to indict individuals overseas, not just Russians, but in other cases, uh, officials of other governments. And some people say, oh, well, you know, they may never, you may never see the inside of a US courtroom. Well, number one, uh, they will if they travel. So suddenly their vacation options are significantly limited. <laughs> and number two, we've been pretty effective and we don't give up. Well, the offer was made by Mr. Putin himself to allow US agents to travel to Russia and to observe the questioning of suspects. Is that something, do you think that's a, first of all, do you think it was a, a, a false promise and is it something that you or the U.S. Justice Department would ever consider? Well, I'll, I think I'll leave that one to Special Counsel Mueller. So. Moving beyond this case, in general, would you, would you ever envision a world in which you would allow suspects to be interviewed by Russia and, and observe? Well, I never want to say never about anything, but it's certainly not high on our list of investigative techniques. <laughs> There has, uh, there has also been the suggestion from Putin that he would want to come have interview Americans. Is that something that you would support? That's probably even lower on our list of <laughs> investigative techniques. I think we've got that clear. Based on everything that's, and I'm talking about in the public realm, that we know about the Mueller investigation, the indictments that exist, is there anything that would allow it to be called a witch hunt? I've been consistent. I get asked this a lot. I do not believe Special Counsel Mueller is on a witch hunt. Uh, I think it's a professional investigation conducted by a man that I've known to be a straight shooter uh, in all my interactions with him in my past life in government uh, and certainly uh, since then. Um, so I don't think it's a witch hunt. Do you think that investigation, though, has been held to its mandate, or was the mandate extraordinarily broad? Well, I, don't, I can't really discuss the mandate because the scope is, is in a confidential uh, document. But, but from what you're seeing, there's nothing that suggests that it's, it's running amok or running around the edges? Well, as I said, I think Special Counsel Mueller is conducting a professional investigation. We're going to return to, um, I want to get back into some of the cyber issues because they apply in other areas in a minute. But let me talk about what's happening in the FBI right now. The FBI is under fire. I know you've said many times it comes with the territory, that criticism is part of what you deal with. And your folks are professionals and they are focused, but that stuff does tend to erode. Can you comment on the morale and what it's like to hear the President of the United States malign you and your folks? Look, there are a lot of opinions out there about us from a lot of people expressed in a lot of different ways. The, the opinions that I care about, the opinions that I think our workforce cares about are the opinions of people who actually know us through our work and express their views through their engagement with us on our work. So what do I mean by that? Uh, we care about the opinions of victims and their families. Who do they trust when their child's kidnapped to get them back? Who do the American people trust to keep them safe from terrorist attacks? 
Who do the American people trust to investigate public corruption? What do judges think when a, uh, one of our agents takes the stand in their, their courtroom or when they're presented with a, a search warrant? Uh, what do our state and local partners, our, our other federal agency partners, our intelligence community partners, our partners in the private sector, frankly, increasingly is a very big part of what we do. What do those people think? Uh, and the feedback that we get from them uh, has been uniformly positive. So, and I look at, when I look at morale, I'm more interested, again, in how people express their views through actions. I'm a big believer in the idea that talk is cheap, actions matter a lot more. So I look at how's our recruiting done? Our recruiting is great. Uh, we have about 12,000 plus. We'd like to have even more agents applying every year. We have a 5% selection rate. That's better than Harvard, it's better than Yale, it's better than Princeton. Uh, I look at our attrition rate at the back end. Uh, our attrition rate is 0.8%. Uh, this year it's 0.6%. There's not, I bet there's not an organization out here that has a 0.6% attrition rate. So again, that's because people who work in the FBI love the mission. They love the mission and that's what keeps them there. Would they prefer not to get criticized? Of course, we'd prefer not to get criticized. But at the end of the day, the criticism that we care about is the criticism um, of people, from people who actually would know us through our work. So the day juries don't trust us, that I care about. You're not seeing that. I'm not. You're not, you're I'm not, not. You're not seeing defense attorneys go, well, it's the FBI. In fact, it's funny you mentioned that. There was a, there was a case not that long ago, a, a, a case in, in Kansas where, um, a number of individuals had tried to blow up a building, uh, an apartment complex uh, that had Somali immigrants in it. And during the jury selection, and this got covered by the press, the first part during the jury selection, there were some jurors who were saying that they'd heard a lot of negative things about the FBI. And there was you know, some hand-wringing that went with that. Well, what the press didn't cover is what happened after that. After the jury got selected, after they heard from eight plus agents from all over the country on the stand, on a four-week trial, took the jury less than a day to convict the defendants on all counts. So again, people who saw our work up close, who in an informed way, they trust us. And that's what matters the most. But how has the criticism, again, from the President of the United States, how has it affected your ability to work uh, with other agencies, with other countries, your coordination? Uh, I mean, you. You've been accused of essentially doing illegal things, wiretaps that, that didn't exist. The engagement, as I said, I just came back with a meeting with a number of our foreign partners. The engagement that we have, the feedback that we get from foreign partners, from other partners and other agencies has been, we love you guys, it's great. What can we do to help? We need even more of you. Um, I joke, uh, although it's only half joking, that uh, you asked about my predecessors one thing I do experience that I'm not sure any of them did is, uh, you know, it's pretty common for me to meet somebody and have them introduce themselves and then say, I just want you to know, we're all praying for you. <laughs> uh, and the first couple times that happened, I thought, gosh, I just have my physical. I'm, I'm fine. You know? Um, my, you know, I believe strongly in the power of prayer, so I always say thank you. And then my third reaction is, I haven't seen TV in the last two hours. Is this, is this all the other stuff or did something new happen? But the important point is they're all coming up and saying, we support you, we're praying for you, what can we do to help? The DOJ's Inspector General report uh, was not kind uh, to the FBI. What did you learn? What did you take away from it that really made you stop and think about the way that business is conducted? Well, I thought the Inspector General's report was tough. Um, that's usually been my experience with Inspector General reports. Um, but it was fair. It was objective. Um, it, we learned some important lessons. We have a lot of things we're doing right now to implement those lessons. I will say it's important to keep in context the report. This is a report that focuses on a small number of people, some of them very high profile, but a small number of people on one investigation over a period of about 15 months. We're an organization of 37,000 people that does thousands and thousands of investigations every year and it's about to turn 110 years old. So, 
some level of perspective, I think, is appropriate. But that doesn't mean we don't take it very, very seriously. And to me, one of the central lessons from the report is the importance of process. And that's one of the themes that I've been pounding home in every town hall I go to, in every, all around different field offices, different headquarters divisions, which is we need to make sure that we're not just doing the right thing, but we're doing it in the right way. How you get from point A to point B matters almost as much as the result. And the reason that matters is that when people start making exceptions, when people start deviating from policy, guidelines, our norms, even if their heart's in the right place, and even if they might feel like they have a good reason for it, that's when things go off track. So the, to me, we need to be in a situation where we'll get criticized for the results no matter what we do. If you think about something as basic as any investigation we do, we're either gonna be able to charge somebody in which case he ain't gonna like it and we're gonna get criticized by him, his lawyer, his family, his friends, or maybe we're not gonna be able to make the case, in which case there's a whole number of group of people who are gonna be disappointed and may criticize us. Our safe place, the reason why the FBI, I think, has the brand that it's had over 110 years is that our process needs to be bulletproof. To me, I think most people, when they think of the FBI, think straight shooters, both Literally, of course, <laughs> uh, but figuratively, too. And that's what we need to make sure we are in everything we do, every investigation, every intelligence analysis, every personnel decision. Uh, and if we do that, I'm confident everything will turn out. And, and granted, there are a lot of agents, a lot of employees of the FBI, and only a handful of people making, making the news in these ways. But let me ask you, I mean, Peter Strozik um, has become a rallying cry right now for those who are you know, worried about the FBI and the sense of bias. How damaging has that been? Again, uh, we're talking about one person uh, in that instance, and there's a pending personnel matter. And as I said, I want to make sure that we're doing things, following our process, doing things by the book. Our Inspector General report has referred a number of individuals to our disciplinary process. And I think it's very, very important that we let that process, without delay, work itself through and get to a result, uh, as opposed to responding to uh, hue and cry. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna make decisions based on yelling and screaming. I'm gonna make decisions based on the process. Do you, do you believe the president is sincere in his claims that the FBI is against, against him? I, and I don't mean, you know, do you think he's right or wrong, but do you think he is sincere? About? About, about his complaints about the FBI that it is somehow working against him. Uh, I think I have a very professional relationship with the president. Um, I don't try to weigh in on all of his opinions. Uh, as I said to somebody recently, I'm, I'm not much of a Twitter guy, so uh, <laughs> we're just gonna focus on doing our job. Your, your own uh, survey data indicates the FBI workforce is frustrated uh, with leadership. Why do you think that is? And, and I'm wondering, do you think there is a feeling among the rank and file they want you to be more forceful, come out in a stronger, defense? You know, the survey, one of the things that's important about that survey is that it was relatively early in my tenure. One of the other interesting takeaways from it was that the morale of the organization, which you asked about earlier, stayed constant even through all the turbulent times we've been through. And the affection and the enthusiasm and the passion for the mission remained unchanged. Um, I'm a more low-key guy, I get that. It's going to take people a little while to get to know me, but the feedback that I get when I go out, and I'm trying to get to all 56 field offices by the end of the year, and I'm up in the high 30s now, and the feedback I get in office after office has been strong. That was also a time period that was right around the time that the then deputy director uh, had just gone on terminal leave, and the reasons for it were not yet apparent, uh, so I think that may have contributed to the results. Are, are there times you feel it's time for you know, a, a morale talk? I mean, for example, after the news conference in, in Helsinki, did you gather folks together? Did you send a message? Did you say buck up or we're okay? You know, I find that our folks, contrary to what you hear on TV uh, or see on TV, uh, love the mission. Uh, and I look at story after story and example after example. Uh, I mean, I look at the, I went to the San Juan office. Those people have been through a real storm, not just a figurative one. And the enthusiasm that they had for the mission and the work was really off the charts. I look at the woman in Miami that I met the other day who 
I got 12 stitches in her face, and the next day, she's back at it. I look at the guy in Chicago uh, on SWAT who got shot at point-blank range by an AK-47, lost the use of his right arm, retaught himself to shoot left-handed, requalified for SWAT left-handed. Try to think about how hard that would be. Does that guy love his job? You know. The uh, House has made uh, some pretty unusual demands for documents related to the Clinton and uh, Mueller investigations. Have, there been, have you been asked to cross lines that you're uncomfortable with on that, on that level? There's always going to be a tension between congressional oversight and protection of sources and methods and ongoing criminal investigations. Uh, my experience has been that if both sides are looking to try to work it out in a responsible way, you can get there. Um, I'm committed to being responsive to congressional oversight, but I am also unwilling to budge on talking about ongoing investigations and protecting sources and methods. I think our partners, our foreign partners, expect that from us. I think our sources expect that from us. So, you know, it can, it can, there can be tension, but I, we're working our way through the... But have you, in fact, been, been had to give over some of that information? I think we've managed to walk a, a fine line, but in a way that I think is respectful of both issues. Are, are you worried about a precedent being set if you, if you give too much in your view? I think if we start exposing sources and methods, we are setting a dangerous precedent. I think if we start talking about ongoing criminal investigations in a way that puts those investigations at risk, we're setting a dangerous precedent. And there will always be somebody who says, oh, no, 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 this one is special. This one is different. This is a unicorn. We should do it this time. And I think one of the central lessons of the IG report you mentioned earlier is that those are precisely the times when it's important to do it by the book and stay consistent with precedent. And you say that the criticism, you essentially let it roll off. But what about the increasing pressure in these instances from Congress? Is it making it more difficult for you to do your job? Look, I think Congress has a job to do. Um, Obviously, there are some days that I enjoy more than others. Um, but I think they have a job to do, and we have a job to do. And hopefully, we can find ways to both do our jobs. Did, did James Comey open the door by sharing lots of the documents that, with Congress after it appeared the Clinton investigation was closed? Well, I think the IG report sort of speaks for itself on that. Um, so I'm not going to try to recharacterize their findings. Um, certainly, as I said before, I think one of the central lessons of that report is that the policies we have, the guidelines we have, the longstanding norms and practices that we have are there for a reason. Uh, they're there to protect the institution, especially when it's most tempting, when there's the most pressure to just capitulate. And so I guess what I would say is, I've read some news stories that suggest that we're engaged in wholesale stonewalling and obstructionism, and nothing could be further from the truth. On the other hand, I've also read stories that suggest we're just capitulating wholesale and turning over all kinds of unprecedented information. That's also not true. There have also been stories that, that you threatened to resign. Have you, hit a, have you ever hit a point on, on that issue of sources and methods or anywhere else where you said, this is a line? You know, I'm a, uh, as I said, I'm a low-key understated guy, but that should not be uh, mistaken for what my spine is made out of. <laughs> So you I'll have... Just leave it. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, there's been a lot of talk about Russia for obvious reasons, but I do want to talk about China. Um, do you, from your perspective and, and the things that you're looking at, do you see China as an adversary, and if so, on what levels? Well, I think China, uh, from a counterintelligence perspective, in many ways represents the broadest, most challenging, most significant threat we face as a country. Uh, and I say that because for them, it is a whole of state effort. It is economic espionage as well as traditional espionage. It is non-traditional collectors as well as traditional intelligence operatives. It's human sources as well as cyber means. It, we have economic espionage investigations in every state, all 50 states that trace back to China. It covers everything from uh, corn seeds in Iowa to wind turbines in Massachusetts uh, and everything in between. Um, and so the volume of it, 
the pervasiveness of it, the significance of it, uh, is something that I think this country cannot underestimate. Are they going after things, though, differently than, than for example, what you've been seeing with the Russians and our democratic process? They, it's a different, if it's a different kind of threat, obviously the Russia threat is a significant one that I think we need to deal with very aggressively indeed. But I, I think the China threat, uh, China is trying to position itself as the sole dominant superpower, the sole dominant economic power. They're trying to replace the United States in that role. Um, and so theirs is a long-term game that uh, is focused on, as I said, just about every industry, every quarter of society in many ways. It involves academia, it involves research and development. Um, it involves everything from agriculture to high tech. Um, and so theirs is a, as I said, a more pervasive, a broader uh, approach, but in many ways more of a long-term threat to the country. You, you clearly see it as a major threat, but do you have a sense that, that we don't, that not enough attention is paid to it in general. One of the, actually, one of the bright spots that I have observed in my first 10 plus months on the job is on this issue. In that, it's one of the few things I've seen that in a country where sometimes it feels like people can't even agree what day of the week it is, on this, I think people are starting to come together. I see it in the interagency. I see it up on the Hill when I'm talking to the intelligence committees. Uh, across the spectrum. Uh, so I think people are starting to wake up and kind of rub the, you know, the cobwebs or the, uh, the sleep out of their eyes. Uh, and my hope is that we're in a moment where, as a country, we can pivot and really start to take this much more seriously. Is it more difficult, though, when it's, when it's espionage against a company? That, so you have to almost rely on their sophistication as much as your own. Does that make it uneven and challenging? It is challenging, but then that's and you identified one of the reasons. But I think that also presents opportunities, which is why you know conferences like this become important because in the economic espionage arena, public-private partnership is at a premium because the more companies engage with us about what they're most worried about, what threats they are seeing, we can leverage each other in a way to provide more for a common defense. Economic security is national security, but economic security is also their intellectual property. So we have a shared interest in a way that's a little different than the more traditional uh, military complex kind of uh, intelligence threat. We have, uh, we've been focused on North Korea primarily from the nuclear threat, but we, we look back at the Sony hack. What are you seeing from North Korea? Is there any lessening of their aggressiveness at, in terms of hacking, and what are their goals? North Korea represents a, a, a significant cyber threat, although their cyber threat, I think in our assessment, is much, is a little more one-dimensional in its goal, which is typically designed to generate revenue. Uh, obviously, the sanctions have had an impact over the years, and so they're focused in a variety of ways of trying to generate money for the regime uh, through front companies and various other means. I do think their tactics are more sophisticated than I think perhaps people appreciated you know, several years ago. Cyber terrorism. Uh, I mean, cyber affects essentially everything you do right now, but in terms of the risk to our infrastructure, what do you see there and, and what are we doing about it? Well, I mean, there's, some people use the cyber terrorism label for different things, right? So on the one hand, there's a cyber terrorism, which is really more terrorist organizations using social media to you know, disseminate propaganda, techniques, you know, that kind of thing, recruiting, et cetera. I think of cyber terrorism, I think our cyber division thinks of cyber terrorism more as a, a terrorist organization using destructive computer attacks to further their goals. Um, and while there's some of that happening, and we think it's on the upswing, and we think if you think ahead to where we're going next, it's a very real concern. Uh, we're trying to kind of bring both the counterterrorism part of the organization and the cyber part together to try to treat it as a multidisciplinary threat. Okay. Like your predecessor, James Comey, you have warned about this idea of going dark, the going dark problem, specifically the inability to examine locked smartphones. Even with a court order, how serious a problem is this? How many cases does this actually present an impediment to, to justice? 
I mean, it's a significant problem. It's a growing problem. I find that when I go and talk to state and local law enforcement groups, when I talk to foreign partners, when I talk to intelligence community counterparts, this issue, that is the effect of default encryption, even in the face of lawful process, uh, is a real issue for us, and people are less safe as a result of it. Now, we're committed to strong encryption. We have a cybersecurity mission, too. So we have to figure out a way to square that circle and do both. But uh, I have been encouraged by some of the feedback we've gotten from a variety of quarters that if people actually put their heads together, uh, that there are solutions to be had. I do know that we're going to have to find a solution, because to the extent that the bad guys have shifted more and more to living their whole lives through encrypted devices and encrypted messaging platforms, that if we don't find a way to access that information with lawful process, uh, we're in a bad, bad place as a country. And have what's you, interesting yeah. is that these same companies are going to have to, if they want to have access to markets in countries that have governments that are decidedly not like ours, that don't believe in quaint notions like due process and a separate judiciary, uh, if anybody thinks those countries aren't going to insist on access, I got a bridge I can sell you. So um, at some point, we're going to, this is a global problem. And again, I think if industry and government put their heads together, as somebody who's been on both sides of the table, uh, I really believe that this is the kind of thing that if people go into the conversation with a goal of trying to solve the problem as opposed to trying to exacerbate the problem, we'll get there. But there's still a lot of daylight between you and Silicon Valley. Are you making any progress? I guess, is there room for compromise here? I think there should be. Um, I don't want to characterize sort of private conversations we're having with people in the industry. Uh, we're not there yet, for sure. And if we can't get there, you know, there may be other remedies like legislation that would have to uh, come to bear. But I really do believe that if people come at it with a goal that I think we all share of having both strong cybersecurity and protecting flesh and blood Americans, Again, there's a way to do this. We're a country that has unbelievable innovation. We put a man on the moon. We, you know, we have the power of flight. We have autonomous vehicles. I mean, the number of things that are created every day in this country uh, really defies imagination sometimes. And so the idea that we can't solve this problem as a, as a society, just, I just don't buy it. I, I want to talk about terrorism in the more traditional manner that we've looked at it, ISIS. Uh, there's been great progress on the battlefield, on the traditional battlefield against ISIS. What are you seeing, though, in terms of your battlefield? Are you seeing fewer and fewer responding to the, to the online uh, propaganda? I think that the terrorist threat has not lessened. It's just changed. So we, have, we do see fewer people traveling overseas to fight for ISIS. Um, the battlefield has become decidedly less attractive to some of them, uh, thanks to the great work of our DOD partners. Um, and so what we're seeing instead, though, uh, is a different kind of threat that in many ways just presents a whole different level of challenges, which is what we call the homegrown violent extremists, which are people already here who are radicalizing here, uh, inspired by different parts of the global jihadist movements that are out there, um, and, and they are basically responding to calls to essentially, don't bother coming over here where you'll get killed on the battlefield, stay where you are and attack at home. And so we have, even as we're sitting here, we have a thousand active investigations in all 50 states into people like the kinds I'm describing. And that's not even counting traditional ISIS investigations or domestic terrorism investigations. Uh, so these, and what makes these challenging is you think about the old model. When I was in this work last time, you know, we spent a lot of time looking at Al-Qaeda sleeper cells and things like that. Well, if you think about the classic, and this audience will have the sophistication to appreciate why this is such an issue, you think about a classic Al-Qaeda sleeper cell, you're talking about you know, 15, 20, 30 people uh, engaging over a period of time in planning and fundraising and strategizing and preparing and practicing and they're communicating with each other in some ways. And so if you know what to do, there are a lot of dots out there, that old expression about connecting the dots. There are a lot of dots to connect if you look in the right place. 
what these threats represent, you could have one guy uh, at home in mom's basement, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, <laughs> you know, who's maybe um, you know, lost his job or has you know, slight mental health issues, slight substance abuse issue, disaffected in some, some way, and has access to the internet and has nothing but time on his hands. And those people are a threat because they're not communicating with a lot of people and their attack methods are crude but agile. So instead of some spectacular attack involving a plane, it's not that complicated to take a car and go drive it you know, into a busy pedestrian. You're, you're talking office. about a thousand active cases. Uh, you know, are they just, is it a see something, say something thing that may not pan out to be anything? Or, I mean, how, how are these things popping up in your radar when they are so isolated? Well, in many cases, we'll have uh, a source in the community that comes forward. Uh, we have a lot of human sources out there. Uh, that's a very important part of what we do. Uh, sometimes we'll pick up things uh, through other kinds of investigation. Uh, but we do need people in the community to speak up because what we know is most of the kinds of people that I'm describing didn't just wake up one day and decide to kill somebody. There was a, there was a progression over a period of time and when we look back after an attempted attack, you can almost always see that there was a point along the continuum where the person kind of crossed over from just being radicalized to being mobilized. And so what we need are people, there's almost always a neighbor, a family member, a friend, a coworker, somebody who observed that. And we need to be in a situation where people trust us enough to, as you say, see something and say something. Do you have the manpower? Well, we can always use more resources. Uh, I will say, you know, look, we have 37,000 people in the FBI, but we also have fantastic task force officers. For almost every street agent, there is a task force officer, which is someone from another agency, another federal agency, state and local partners, intelligence community partners, foreign partners, um, and they work on our task forces and we consider them part of the FBI family and that's a significant force multiplier. What, what have you done to avoid a repeat of what happened earlier this year where the FBI failed to follow up on tips about a young man who later became uh, the school shooter in the, in the uh, Parkland attack? At, at the time you said, you know, we're going to take a look at that. What have you learned? Well, we did a number of things. We immediately sent uh, teams from our inspection division out there to drill down, and I, my instructions were basically nothing's off limits. Uh, so look at you know policies, process, people, training, the whole nine yards. And I think what we discovered, of course, is that there's a tension between trying to move as quickly as you can and the sheer volume, uh, and at the same time asking all the right questions in order to then move things along. And so we've started to make a number of changes to prevent people from being able to close out a call without seeing a more supervisory input. We're trying to bring in more agent judgment uh, on that. But again, part of it is training, part of it is technological. That is, in you can't close out the file uh, without certain um, sign-offs by certain people. So there's a number of things we're trying to do like that. I, I will also say, though, that the concern that somehow that episode uh, was going to lead to fewer people speaking up. We didn't see that. In fact, we saw the opposite. We've actually been sort of overloaded with calls of people with various threats. Um, and so all of our field offices and our public access line are you know, kind of working overtime trying to crank through uh, the mountain of calls and tips that we've gotten. Well, Director, I'm enjoying the conversation. We're down to our last 50 minutes, so you want to take some audience questions? Absolutely. All right. Hi. Hi. Um, this is probably an unexpected question. Um, as class secretary, Chris, um, we'd like to know if you're monitoring our class Facebook page at Andover. And <laughs> also, are you going to get the band back together, maybe do a bipartisan band with Bill Parsons? Uh, well, it's a small world, isn't it? Uh, yeah, my, uh, I, was, uh, I played bass in a number of bands when I was in high school, but uh, those days are unfortunately somewhat behind me. Uh, so, but uh, we have a different kind of band now and I think we're, we're playing a good tune, so. I didn't know you were a bass player. I'm a bass player. Oh, well, good. Well, we I, should I have a band. Come, jam, come yeah, jam with our band. Uh, yes, another question over here somewhere. Did I see a hand? 
Thank you very much for coming to the, to the conference and speaking so candidly. Charlie Dunlap from Duke University. You mentioned academia as being one of the areas that's under threat by the Chinese. You know, some universities have campuses, including Duke, in China. What should the universities be doing to uh, protect against this threat? Do you have any suggestions or ideas? Well, I think the first thing I would say is, uh, while it's a multidisciplinary concern, the biggest focus is, of course, more on the graduate level uh, as opposed to the undergraduate level. And it's obviously much more focused on STEM issues and so forth. But um, I think trying to, you know, communicating with the local FBI office, I think, is important because there's a lot we have found uh, in a way that I find very encouraging and a bright spot, frankly, in the country that over the last few years, as we have started to engage more with universities in a awareness raising way. Um, the response, while initially a little guarded and concerned, uh, there was a time not that long ago when the FBI wasn't exactly welcomed with open arms on college campuses, but has actually been very gratifying. And to me, that says something very optimistic about this country, that once people get the facts, we're not telling them what to do. Um, you know, we have to be more creative about how we can share information, sometimes which is kind of sensitive. Uh, but I've been, like I said, very encouraged in a lot of different universities around the country at the way people have responded uh, and pushed back on certain research and development um, exchanges and so forth. And it's a challenge, right? We have an open, collaborative research environment, which is one of the strengths of this country. But people need to do it with their eyes open um, and really think carefully about what they're getting into. Uh, I guess right down here in front. Hi, Director Hi. Ray. How are you? Fine. Are you? Uh, you rely a great deal on the cooperation of communities. And um, in a community like Charlottesville, we understand from uh, reports that the Russians may have been playing, uh, but they couldn't have been playing unless we were doing it to ourselves. So what can local communities do to inoculate ourselves from this type of manipulation uh, and to create a more robust structure so that we can help you? You know, I think there's a role for government and community and individuals in all of this. Um, obviously, as law enforcement and national security, we can't and shouldn't be trying to police content. Um, but what people can do, I mean, the best weapon against propaganda and misinformation and information warfare um, is information. <laughs> so the more people are thinking critically about what is this I'm reading, who really is the source of this, and the more in cooperation with, say, social media companies, the more disinfectant of transparency we can provide to who the source of certain things is, the origins of certain things are, the more people I think, uh, you know, I trust the American people to be a lot smarter about stuff if they know who's behind what they're reading. And so we're looking at ways to try to increase awareness. Uh, but in the meantime, communities can suggest that people, I think we all benefit from critical thinking. Uh, don't just believe everything you read. Um, I know that sounds pedantic and basic, but uh, there are a lot of times in this country where I think people would benefit from being reminded of that. This is a gentleman right here. Mr. Director, thanks so much for coming. I'm Paul Thompson, a Professor of Homeland Security at Penn State. And we're teaching our students a lot of the same things you're talking about all the time. But you've been a student of the Constitution and a practitioner of the Constitution all your life. There's lots of discussion now in Washington and elsewhere that the Constitution is no longer up to the challenges the country faces. And there are forces that would like to see cha major changes made. How do you feel about that? Do you feel that you're adequately armed with all the necessary constitutional provisions and statutes to do your job? Uh, I I feel like our Constitution is a strength, not a limitation. Uh, now, we have, we have legislation. Uh, there are statutes, not the Constitution itself, but there are statutes that in many cases are out of date based on technology. Sometimes you read a certain statute and you feel like it was written at the time of the horse and buggy instead of some of the technological challenges we have now. So there's plenty of room for our laws to be updated uh, to make it easier for national security and law enforcement to do their jobs. Um, but our mission is to protect American people and uphold the Constitution.
questions? A gentleman in the back. Thanks to both of you. Uh, D Director Ray, the, the name that hasn't been mentioned very much, if at all, in the last 45 minutes is, of course, the President himself. A and it is the President who has taken direct aim at the Bureau frequently uh, and has accused the Bureau of a whole host of illegal acts, which Le Lester mentioned, but also a bias against him uh, and a whole host of nefarious activities. Uh, and he shows no sign of stopping those attacks for whatever ends, political ends they may be. I, I want to ask you this question. I'm not going to ask you if you think that's patriotic or not. I'm just going to ask you directly, does that serve the country's national security interests to have the Commander-in-Chief take such consistent aim at the FBI as well as the Department of Justice? And just as a follow, if you're disappointed in your role and a life of, of, of public service, that you haven't heard more consistent parrying of those attacks from sitting Republican lawmakers. We're big boys and girls. We get criticized by all sorts of people. Uh, I come back to the answer I gave Lester before, which is my focus is on what are the people who experience us through our work think. At the end of the day, our work is what endures. And I'm far more interested in what those people say and reflect than I are, am by various other uh, comments. Um, and what I try to say to our people is we need to be remembering who it is we do this work for. We do this work for the victims, for the 325 million American people that are out there. Uh, we're in a different age. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of rhetoric. Doesn't mean I appreciate all of it. Doesn't mean our people appreciate all of it. But we've got pretty thick skins and we just need to be focused on doing our jobs. Uh, this is gentleman right here. Um, I'd like to know, what are the three things that keep you up at night? <laughs> and also, what's the question you weren't asked that you wish you were? <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I I, I'm tempted to answer both questions with the same one. I, I told my wife, well, sometimes people want to ask me what keeps you awake at night. And she says, can you ask them, please, what will keep you awake at night? <laughs> uh, <laughs> on a, you know, we have a long list of threats. Uh, obviously, I'm concerned about a lot of the same things most Americans are concerned about. Um, I think if, you know, in many ways, the threats that I'm worried about are the ones that are coming around the corner. I think as an agency, as a government community, we tend to be so focused on chasing the threat of today that pretty quickly that becomes the threat of yesterday and not the threat of tomorrow or next year or the year after that. So one of the, my big points of emphasis is try to encouraging the very, very creative and smart 37,000 men and women of the FBI to try to think around the corner, over the horizon, and think about what, what's the threat that hasn't come yet that's just now starting to emerge. Uh, so what I worry about in many ways is are we not seeing that because we're so busy in the moment. Um, as to what the question I wasn't asked um, is why is not all the other unbelievable work that is done by the men and women of the FBI every day in this country the hundreds and hundreds of violent gang members that are being put away just this year alone, the hundreds of kids that are rescued just this year alone, the terrorist attacks that have been disrupted in the last 12 months or less, why is all that not being talked about? If you, and in no disrespect to our good friends in the news media, but if you watch television, you would think the FBI basically has had only two investigations, <laughs> both involving the last presidential election. And Hopefully it's not a shock to anybody in this room that we actually have 37,000 men and women, brave, principled, selfless people who work their tails off, who are inspiring people to work with. Um, and I think we need more people in America asking, what are those people are doing?
And that is going to, I think, wrap. Actually, we do have time for one more question. I guess we have time for one more question. Hi there. Betsy Woodruff with The Daily Beast. Speaking of the other investigations the FBI is working on, can you give us any quantification, either number of agents, number of open investigations, to the extent the FBI is focused on foreign influence operations in the United States? Well, a lot of our counterintelligence work, I would call, uh, focused on foreign influence operations. We do have a foreign influence task force, uh, which is viewed more as a sort of central coordinating body at headquarters that then works with all the field offices and the counterintelligence, cyber, criminal, and even counterterrorism agents that are out there working on it. Uh, and the reason I bring up all of those is because I think one of the big changes we've made since before the last election, just in the first few months when I got on board, is we've tried to view this more as a multidisciplinary problem. It's not just a counterintelligence problem. Yes, it's a tool of foreign intelligence efforts, but it's also got cyber means. But on top of that, there are all sorts of criminal laws that can get violated in the process. So there are criminal investigations that can be used as disruption techniques against foreign influence. And even counterterrorism, you might be scratching your head saying, well, what does counterterrorism have to do with foreign influence? But just uh, along the lines of the question about Charlottesville, for example, to the extent that we have domestic terrorism in this country that is spun up by various ideologies, foreign influence is being used in many ways to capitalize on that and spin up domestic extremist movements to create terrorist attacks here inside. So there's, again, there's a multi-dimensional effort. So there's a lot of agents and analysts and professional staff in all four of those divisions uh, working on the issue. I don't have a, a number, but it's, it's a significant number if you count all the, the investigations that flow out of that effort. So it's not all Russia, of course. There's different kinds of influence from other countries. All right, well, with that, we do have to end. Director, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Christopher Ray has served as FBI director since August of 2017. Previously, he oversaw criminal matters in the George W. Bush administration. He was the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division at the Department of Justice. Lester Holt is an award-winning journalist who anchors NBC Nightly News and Dateline NBC. Their conversation was held on June 18th at the Aspen Security Forum in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Security Forum's programming team includes Clark Irvin, Rob Walker, and John Hogan. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.